Open our hearts, Lord God, that we might not only understand your word, but live it out in our lives, in our community, through this time, through this moment. Amen. Well, thank you very, very much for your invitation. It's lovely to be back. Um, I remember first coming here when uh, there were hardly any houses, uh, just masses of fields and a plan. Uh, and then again when you met in the Ark, and then uh, more recently when you were in the community centre, and now here in your own church building. And as Peter said, I've sort of driven around it and had a look at it, but I've never been inside before, so it's really thrilling to see the word the way God has worked among you and, uh, and the way you have captured and implemented uh, the vision that he's calling you to. I gather from Peter that you're having a series on New Testament communities and I think you went last week to Corinth. Um, I must say actually that, that if you read 1 and 2 Corinthians, um, they're not letters that you'd have been pleased to receive for the most part had Peter written you a letter like that. You know, you might have had, you know, odd good bits like 1 Corinthians 13, but mostly, you know, they wouldn't have been good. It it reminds me a bit of a a bloke who told me about a friend of his who uh, went from uh, the south uh, as a vicar to be a vicar of a church in Halifax. And after his first Sunday, um, somebody came up to him and said, uh, Hey, vicar, can they take constructive criticism? Oh, yes, I think so, yes, yes, sir. Yeah. Right then, that's rubbish. <laughs> that's sort of a letter. Uh, <laughs> um, so today we arrive at Thessalonica. Thessalonica uh, was a trading city, a free city, which meant it didn't have a Roman garrison in it. Uh, and it was a cross- crossroads uh, of really important routes, both north and south, up, up through Greece, and also uh, east and west, um, uh, because it was a seaport, uh, an important centre of trade. Uh, it became the capital city of the province of Macedonia, uh, which includes much of what we now know as modern Greece. Uh, a prosperous place, and like many prosperous places, it attracted a large Jewish community, and it was indeed to that Jewish community that Paul and Silas first went to preach. It's interesting to look at Acts 17, which we had read just uh, briefly, uh, 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 part of it at least, um, just a few minutes ago, um, where we read about Paul and Silas's mission to Thessalonica, which happened probably, or they went there probably around about 50 AD. Because if you read that full chapter, it provides some very important principles of mission. As is his custom, Paul starts by going to the Jewish synagogue and he tries to persuade the Jews that from their own scriptures, from their Old Testament scriptures, that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah who they're expecting. Later on in that chapter, he goes to Athens and he wanders around Athens and this is a city full of pagans, full of Gentiles, a city that worships idols. And of course, they have never read the Bible. They've never, probably mostly never heard of the Bible. They certainly don't accept its authority. So Paul doesn't even bother to mention the Bible. Instead, he starts where they are. He uses an inscription he finds to an unknown God, and he tries to convince them that this unknown God has now made himself known through Jesus Christ. And he even quotes one of their own poets back to them. Nowhere does he mention the Bible? 
And I say this because one of the first principles of mission is that you have to start where people are. You have to get to know what makes them tick, what it is they believe in, uh, what it is that's important to them, what culturally, how they, how they op- operate. Um, you have to start where people are, and that applies just as much to Camborne as it does to Athens or Thessalonica. Another interesting aside is the person of Jason. He is clearly a convert who invites Paul and Silas to his home when they are no longer welcome in the synagogue. Jason reminds me a bit of of, uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 10 when he sends out the twelve. He says, Whatever town or village you enter, find a worthy person and stay with him until you depart. Such people, in mission terms, they're the sort of gatekeepers to the community. They're the people who know their own community, who have all the contacts with them, and they are the way in to getting alongside people and making them known. You might ask yourself, who are the gatekeepers among you? Who are the people who are really the sort of the way in to the rest of the community? Often there are people who are new converts, people like Jason who are not yet so caught up in the activities of the church that they've still got loads of mates uh, and contacts in the wider community. Of course, in any uh, undertaking in life, and that includes uh, starting churches, there are unforeseen circumstances. Life rarely follows some ideal 10-year plan or at least it doesn't in my case and about your lives, but mine isn't like that at all. Um, and Paul refers in verse 6 to the persecution of the church in Thessalonica and the persecution that it's still suffering. And we see when we read that bit in Acts 17 that the Jews after a while become jealous of Paul because he's actually uh, he's taking some of their people who are being caught up in their enthusiasm uh, for uh, for Christ and, and, and discovering God through Christ, uh, they start to sort of drift away from the synagogue. And so they become jealous and finally they drive Paul and Silas out of town and have Jason arrested. Paul and Silas had clearly planned to spend a lot more time in Thessalonica building up the church, but for reasons beyond their control, they are unable to do so. Harold Macmillan famously replied when asked by a reporter what, his big, what the big, biggest problems were facing him as Prime Minister. And he said, events, my dear boy, events. You know, you don't, uh, you know, you don't imagine when you become President of the United States that 9-11 is going to happen. Uh, you know, I don't suppose uh, that anybody uh, becoming Prime Minister uh, four or five years ago imagined the sort of global financial cri- crisis that we've been through. Uh, but those are the things you have to respond to, and those are the things which affect the way things go. And so often in our mission uh, engagement, uh, we need certainly to have clear strategies and plans, but also to be able to respond to the sorts of unexpected circumstances which inevitably cross our path. Well, all that by way of introduction. What is the community of Christians in Thessalonica like? 
Well, despite their shortcomings, particularly in their understanding or other misunderstanding of the second coming of Christ, which we see as you read uh, the rest of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, where Paul is trying to correct that understanding, uh, and that's probably uh, related to the fact that Paul and Silas are not able to be with them all that long. Um, Despite that misunderstanding, the church has become, uh, to use Paul's words in verse 7, an example, a model for all believers in the region. This idea of being an example or being a model is a really important one. Paul says that they in turn have not only, they, they have become now an example, but they in turn were imitators of him and silence. That word imitators, um, it, it gets to the heart of what discipleship is really about. That discipleship is not essentially about understanding some doctrine or gaining knowledge. It's about the way our lives change by following someone else's example. If you like, serving an apprentice of one who is worthy of imitation. Indeed, the word disciples mean exactly that, means exactly that. A follower of a master. Someone who learns hands-on from someone who is already proficient. My brother um, is a violin maker. Um, he works in, in, he's got a, a studio in, in Germany, and he's become uh, one of the foremost violin makers in Europe. And he has trained a number of apprentices. And he has a, um, a workshop, which is at the side of his house. Um, and they sit together, my brother and his apprentices, who sit together, and the apprentice looks and follows what my brother is doing and learns and copies until he himself is proficient. And now several of uh, those apprentices have set up their own <coughs> businesses, including one um, who works in Cambridge, uh, who was uh, for many years an apprentice of my brother. Um, sitting alongside, following, copying, being allowed to get on with it on your own, being under scrutiny of a master who says, actually, that's not bad, but look, you've made a complete mess of this bit. Um, You really need to think about how you do that again. It needs discipline, commitment, needs encouragement and support. It needs persistence. You might call it obedience. Obedience of a follower to a master, following in the footsteps, working patiently until they too become proficient, until they be to become masters of the art. A salutary question I often ask myself is, do I want my children and my grandchildren to turn out like me? You know, would I be happy? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I suppose the answer is yes and no. You know, there are some things which I think, yeah, you know, it'd be great if they, you know, you know, I think I'm quite good at that. And there are things that think, oh, I hope, I really hope, you know. Those of you who are, you know, parents and grandparents, you know, it is a fearful thing when you start to see your kids and your grandkids imitating you. Quite amusing for us, actually, because uh, now we've now got three grandchildren and, and seeing our children who 
always rebelled against, you know, those sensible boundaries and, and, and regulations that we had, you know, and, and said that, you know, that we were paying them so little pocket money they were going to call child line, you know. And, <laughs> and, uh, and now there they are, you know, doing exactly the same thing with their, with their own kids and Annie and I smile a sort of secret smile to ourselves and try not to say anything. Do I want my kids, my grandkids, the people I work with at the cathedral, do I want them to follow my example? Sometimes, sometimes not. It's a challenge to us to be an example. And particularly because people are far more likely to follow our example um, to do what we do than to do what we say. You're much more likely to become a church in the, in the model of Peter um, than you are uh, in the model of, of, of whatever he says in his sermons. Um, what actually he is like. That, that is the sort of model you take on and, and others of you uh, will model what the community here of Christians is like. We have a huge responsibility as individuals and as a community to live authentically, honestly, with integrity, which is hugely attractive. People don't expect us to be perfect, but they do expect us to be places that are open and honest and able to sort of say, well, actually, you know, um, uh, yeah, as, as a former colleague of mine said, said, learn from me. Learn from me as an example. And if you can't learn from me as an example, learn from me as a warning. <laughs> but actually, to be that sort of authentic community, to be open and honest, um, people will respect that and find it attractive to be able to live... in in a place of integrity and authenticity. It's attractive and compelling. Working in Ely Cathedral has made me think seriously about rule of life. That is to say, um, the sort of rule that traditionally monastic communities kept, um, and in particular, um, the Benedictine rule, because Ely Cathedral was a Benedictine monastery for hundreds of years before the Reformation. Benedict lived um, in Italy, and he wrote his rule in the 6th century AD, and it has been a bestseller for 1,500 years, which cannot be said for most modern books that you read. Um, And there is huge interest in rule of life these days, not just within the church, but in wider society. Um, you know, If you go to somewhere like Greenbelt, um, you'll find that there are monks and nuns there talking about rule of life. You know, A lot of businesses are thinking about rule of life as, as a way of thinking about how they can structure their organization better. A Franciscan monk I used to uh, know well, and he used to come to our local school when I was in uh, uh, East Barnwell in Cambridge as vicar, uh, and and read to the kids. And he always wore his monastic habit, and he had round his habit this girdle which had uh, uh, three knots attached to it. And the kids all knew what the three knots were, and the three knots stood for the monastic vows. And the three knots were no money, no women, and do as you're told. Poverty, chastity, and obedience. But those are Franciscan vows. They are not Benedictine vows. Benedictine vows are different. They do include obedience, which I've already mentioned as essential for becoming a disciple. But they also include an ongoing commitment to transformation, never being complacent 
and satisfied with where we are. Instead, be being determined to go on as individuals and, a, and as a community to be changed day by day, month by month, year by year, more and more into the likeness of Christ the Master. I haven't got time to explore either obedience or transformation uh, today, uh, but if you want to explore those, I've written a book about it. So, uh, I was going to bring some copies, but actually I discovered that I've only got one left. Um, but uh, you can buy it on Amazon. It's called Living Well, and it's about how we relate some of those things to our lives. But I would like to explore with you a little bit, because it's really important to the community of Thessalonica, and I think really important to you here in Camborne, the final monastic vow Benedictines have a vow of obedience, of transformation, and of stability. Perhaps the key verse for us in this respect in our reading of 1 Thessalonians is verse 3 of chapter 1. Paul says, We remember before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, worth noting, as I've said, disciplined, hard work and obedience. Twice in this one verse, Paul talks about uh, work of faith, labor of love. It is work. It doesn't come naturally to most of us. It doesn't come naturally to me. We need to go on working at our faith, um, working at loving people, a labor of love. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says... Don't waste your time worrying about whether you love someone or not. Behave lovingly towards them. When you behave lovingly towards them, you will find yourself loving them more. When you behave unlovingly towards them, you will find yourself loving them less. Work at loving. We can only love in an ongoing way if we work at it. And any of you who are married... Uh, or have any sort of long-term relationship will know that that is true. A Hindu woman that I uh, once stayed with in, in Luton, um, a Hindu family actually, I was talking to this woman who was in her sort of late 40s, they got two teenage kids, um, appeared to be very happily married. And um, I was chatting to her one day and, uh, and, and she told me that her marriage had been arranged and I said, oh, did you love your husband before you got married? Oh no, she said. I didn't get married to my husband because I loved him. I didn't know him before I got married. I didn't get married be, because I loved him. I got married to him in order to love him. I think that's very challenging, actually. You know, I got married in order to love him. I don't know about you feel about you know your your husband or wife, but um, you know, um, sometimes it's definitely the in order to love rather than because I love. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she doesn't feel that way about me. Well, actually, I'm afraid she does. Um, The third vow which Benedictine monks and nuns take is of stability. In practice, this means that they commit themselves not to the Benedictine order, but to that particular community that they're joining, and they commit themselves until to live there and to be obedient and to go on being changed into the likeness of Christ until they die. They're committing themselves for life. There'll be no moving on when things get tough. They'll stick at it for the long term. Christopher Jameson, 
who was until recently the abbot of Worth Abbey, um, whom some of you will have come across. Uh, anybody see the, mo- the programme The Monastery a few years ago on the BBC? Um, uh, one of the things he said in that programme was, the person who you find most difficult is the one who will teach you most about yourself. The person you find most difficult is the one who will teach you most about yourself. Who is it that gets right up your left nostril? And instead of saying, you know, I just can't stand so-and-so because, you know, ask yourself the question, what is it in me that they really trigger off? What is, what, is, what is that little switch that they just know how to turn on? You know, what is that button that they know how to press that really winds me up? And what am I going to do to deal with that? Not to deal with them, but to deal with that myself. And, and rather than say, you know, you know look, you know, these next door neighbours are the neighbours from hell and I am moving, you know, say, you know, how can I, as C.S. Lewis says, how can I work on loving them? How can I do them a good term? Stick it out. To be able to do that requires stability, ongoing commitment, ongoing presence in a particular, ongoing commitment to and presence in a particular community. Paul talks about the Thessalonian Christians as having steadfastness of hope. Other versions translate this patient endurance or enduring constancy. J.B. Phillips says, he calls it sheer dogged endurance in the life you live before God. Sheer dogged endurance. I I like that. Life for the Thessalonian Christians is no joke. They are suffering persecution because of their faith. They're suffering opposition and hardship. But instead of moving away, they stick it out. They are determined to continue in the place God has put them and in the mission God has given them. And that is what stability is about. And it is something we badly need in our society today because, to a very significant extent, we have lost it. Sixty years ago, I was born in the middle of Leeds. And all my extended family, about 25 of us, lived within a one-mile radius. And we were in and out of each other's houses the whole time. We were off to my grandma's for tea and, you know, to, off to see my cousins and, and, and we had big family parties together and we even went on holiday together sometimes. But now, none of us live there. And all the houses that we lived in have been knocked down to do, uh, for inner city motorways and development of Leeds University. None of us live there anymore. My cousins live in Liverpool, Kent, Scarborough, Hamburg, Spain and Australia. The only two from my mum and dad's generation that are still alive live in Kidderminster and York. University, job offers, the desire for a better life has scattered us to the four winds. So when my dad died and my mum became confused and started suffering dementia, I was in the car nearly every weekend going up from Cambridge to Leeds to try and keep an eye on her and look after her. I was the nearest. My brother lives in Germany. You do not need me to tell you what it's like to live in a community where there are no deep roots, where you haven't got masses of extended family living around you. 
where deep, long-term, supportive, enriching relationships with people who live round the corner hardly exist. Where you don't have mum and dad or grandma and granddad, cousins, aunts, uncles around the corner to look after the kids, visit you when you're sick, support you when you've lost your job or help pay the mortgage. Camborne is perhaps a, a sort of a, in some ways, a sort of a microcosm of what our life in this country is now like. Um, we don't have those settled, stable communities anymore. It's not because we've chosen to get rid of it. It's just happened. You know that wonderful Joni Mitchell song from the 1970s, Big Yellow Taxi? And it's got that haunting refrain in it. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. And stability is like that. You know, we didn't think one day, you know, I hate stability, you know. I, I don't want to live anymore with all my extended family. I'm going. Um, well, maybe you did, but most of us didn't do that. It just sort of happened. And then you noticed that it wasn't there and that you didn't have that sort of support structures. Around about the same time as Mum was suffering dementia, Annie and I went to visit our friends Eric and Adreen, um, who are Ugandans and live in southwest Uganda. And we went to visit Eric's home village. Uh, and as we drew up in the truck, about a 100 people gathered around the truck. And I said to Eric, how many of these are your relatives? And he said, they all are. And then we went to see his mum, who, like my mum, was elderly and confused, but what a difference. She was sitting outside her house, surrounded by people who loved her. People cooking her dinner, doing her washing, looking after her fields, sitting and chatting to her. Something which doesn't exist, for the very most part, in this country anymore. And here you are, the people of God in Camborne. No doubt with all sorts of problems and pressures of your own. No doubt with parents, grandparents, children, families, friends who live miles away. And yet here you are building community, building stability. Because you have not built this church with the idea that, you know, it's here for three years and then we'll see how it goes. You have built this church with the idea that this church is going to be here for the foreseeable future. You have built this church as a permanent community of Christ here in Camborne. Trying to put down here in Camborne the solid rock of supportive relationships, of loving, committed service, which will speak to people of the attractive integrity and authenticity of people who are not just here for a good life for themselves, but who are committed to the well-being of the whole community in this place, never content until everyone in Camborne feels loved and supported and brought into the steadfastness of Christ's love, which they can only witness and share in through your lives, individually and together. And it holds a difficult challenge for you, because I dare say that some of you do not intend to stay in Camborne for that long. It's just a convenient staging post between jobs or before retiring elsewhere. Or maybe it isn't. Maybe this is where God is calling you to stay. It might mean saying no to that new job. It might mean sticking with those difficult neighbours 
and looking for every opportunity to do them a good turn. It may mean putting down deep roots here, building that stable, Christian, committed community here for the long haul in order to enable people from the wider community to find a place of belonging, a place to glow, to grow and flourish and feel at home and put down roots of their own, not just in Camborne, but in Christ, so that through your steadfastness, through your enduring constancy, through your sheer dogged determination, the Holy Spirit might work among you as it did in Thessalonica, and Christ might be glorified, and people might find a living hope and faith in him. Amen.